1 Samuel 21 and 22, and I'll read, I'll read those chapters in, in just a moment. But let me, as we go, so if you remember last week, we, we saw David and Jonathan had this, had this, fine, this parting of ways where they made this covenant, and, and they, they left, and, and Jonathan went back to his palace, to his home where he was welcome, and David fled. And so we're going to see for the, for the next several weeks, it's kind of David's wilderness experience where he is on the run. And, and, and one commentator says this uh, about this section of 1 Samuel. He says, because what we'll see, we'll see David is from place to place to place in these two chapters. And the, this one commentator writes, All these references follow David's journey as he moves farther and farther from central royal power at Gibeah and into the fringes of Israelite society. These references create suspense in the extended narrative as the reader sees David forced through no fault of his own to move farther from God's anointing purposes and call on his life. And so as he's going, he's getting further and further away from the throne, which is where we know he's going to end up. And so we, we, there's, there's tension. What, what's happening? I mean, throughout 1 Samuel so far, David has been nothing but loyal. He's been loyal to Saul. He's been loyal to Samuel. He's been loyal to the nation. And here we find him on the run. He, he's an outcast. He, David, is the sole object of the king's destructive eye. And so as David's on the run, if ever there were time for him to pause and question the Lord's intention, surely it'd be during these, these events in, in these two chapters. Yet even on the run, David continues to trust in the Lord. A confidence is shown in the midst of his suffering. In fact, in chapter 22, we're going to see him flee and seek refuge and shelter in a cave. And, and what's interesting is, as you're reading these, there's a few psalms that, that are attributed to David during these portions of his life. And so Psalm 57 is attributed to David and is said to be, have been written while he's seeking shelter from Saul in the cave. And, and listen to David in Psalm 57 as he starts out the psalm, which is in the midst of his, his running. And here's what he writes. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And so that's written by David as he is in a cave fleeing for his life, hiding from the man who seeks to kill him. And so that, that is David's faith on display, the faith of someone who's being unjustly pursued, the faith of someone whose life is constantly in danger. And so what we see in the midst of David's time in the wilderness, his time of wandering, is, ex is an example of faith in the midst of difficulty because at the end of the day, David rests not in refuge that he finds in the cave. That's not where his refuge is. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he rests in the shadow of the Lord's wings. He finds refuge in his merciful God. And so as we see David on the run, we ought to remember that we can learn from David's example of steadfastness, of faith that, is pers that perseveres through trial and unjust suffering. Well, let's read, let's read these chapters. And we'll read chapters 21 and 22 here at the outset. So, so they're not, it's not too much, too much reading. So, so if you have your Bibles, follow along as I begin in chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and he said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. 
I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? <clears throat> so the priest gave him the holy bread for which, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none, none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose, and he fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another hymn and dances? Saul has struck down thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands, and he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow here to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's, her, father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. And he became commander over them. And there with him were about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his ser servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for David, and he gave David provisions, and he gave David the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? 
you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then Saul said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and he fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're thankful for your word, for your inspired word, and we pray that it would, that it would fulfill its purpose, that it would accomplish its purpose here in this place this morning. So we pray that it would, like the rain, fall and nourish and do its work among our lives, those who have gathered here this morning. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there, there's four, four points, uh, four, four points on the outline between these two chapters, and, and we'll work through those, but, but let me show you the the outline first. So first, first nine verses of chapter 21, we see David at Nob, so when he first goes there. And then the, the second half of, of chapter 21, we see David at Gath, so you see the, the, the location changing, he goes to Gath. And then in, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we see the, the gathering of David's army, we see the people coming to him. And then finally, um, in verses 6 through 23, the most troublesome, it seems, of, of these, these chapters is Saul in the priest of Nob, the, the paranoid or maddened king we'll see there in, in verses 6 through 23. Well, let's start there at verses 1 through 9 of chapter 21. David at Nob. Well, like I, as I mentioned, if you, if you remember last week, chapter 20 ended with David and Jonathan parting ways, and Jonathan, as I said, goes back to the city, to the palace. He's welcome there. David has no place, no place anymore. So, so David is on the run. And so chapter 21 picks up his journey. So he heads to Nob. That's, that's the first city he goes to. This would have, been, would have been about two miles south. And so he goes to Nob, and there he meets Ahimelech the priest. And so as the priest, as Ahimelech sees David coming, he, he's trembling. Because here's David, who is the, the king's bodyguard, who's a, a commander of armies, but, but yet he's coming alone. And so Ahimelech says, well, well you should not be alone. What, what's going on? Why are you here, and why are you alone? So, so he's immediately concerned about David and his, and his visit. It's not normal for him to be alone. And so notice verse 2, David said to Ahimelech, here's his answer, the king has charged me with a matter, and he said to me, let no one know anything 
of the manner about which I send you and which I've charged you. I've made an appointment with some young men for, for such and such a place. In other words, David says, it's, it's a secret. The king has sent me on a journey, on a mission, and I haven't been allowed to tell anyone, so that's why I'm alone. Now, the first question we have to consider is, is, is David telling the truth? Is, is David telling the truth, or is he lying to this priest? Now, now I think David's lying. I, I think this is a lie. Now, now, just so you know, I did read one commentator who believes that David here is just being intentionally ambiguous, and he says that the mention of king is actually referring to the Lord. And so that's how he, he says, no, no, there, there's Psalms where, where David refers to Yahweh as the king. And so he says, no, David's not lying. He's just being intentionally ambiguous so as not to raise flags. So he'd say he's not lying because he is on a mission from the king, the Lord himself. Now, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think David is intentionally misleading Ahimelech, which, which leads to the second question. Is David wrong here? Is he wrong? Now, now we, have to be, we have to be honest that the text itself neither condemns nor justifies David for this act here. So, so the text doesn't say this is good or bad. So, so we have to decide, discern with, with wisdom, well, well, is this good or bad? And, and I, I don't think that David is in the wrong here. I don't think David's in the wrong here. I know many disagree. In fact, I, I read a whole sermon several of them, where the preacher's main point of this passage was David's sin. Sin seen here. So they would say, he's wrong, and, and he pays his sin, and the consequences of his sin is all the priests at Nob dying. So that's what they say. They say, this is a, a, a shortfall of David. I don't agree. I don't agree, and here's why. Instead, I, I think, and we'll say more about this when we get there, but I think the incident with the priests at Nob is more about Saul and his sin than David and his sin. I, th- I think that's the point, that, that Saul has gone off his rocker. He is paranoid, and he's a madman. And I think that's, that's illustrated by the events there at, with the priests of Nob. But, but I think what David is doing here is, is okay, right? Am I saying it's okay to lie? I, I do. I think it's okay to lie, and here's why. Because I think it's similar, if, if you remember in Exodus chapter 1. So in Exodus chapter 1... Pharaoh, right, so the Israelites are enslaved by Pharaoh. They're getting to be too many, too populated. And so the, the evil Pharaoh says, okay, midwives, you, 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 uh, you Egyptian midwives, you watch the, the Hebrew ladies. When they give birth, if it's a son, kill it. That's what, that's what Pharaoh tells them in, in, in Exodus 1. We've we got to put an end to this population growth among the Israelites. So, so do that. And the midwives refuse to do it. They don't do it. And when Pharaoh comes to them and confronts them, they lie. He says, well, why, why aren't you killing the sons? And, and the, 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 he, the midwives say, these Hebrew women are like no women in, in Egypt. They're vigorous, and they give birth before he can even get there. And so that's what they tell Pharaoh, which isn't true. They have intentionally decided, we're not going to obey. And then they lie to Pharaoh to cover themselves, right? So they don't receive the wrath of Pharaoh. And yet, the verses in Exodus 1 that, that followed that incident, they say that God dealt well with the midwives and gave them families of their own because they feared God. And so they are commended for lying to Pharaoh and not killing the sons, the, the Israelite sons. And so they lie, and, and, and the fundamental purpose for their lie was the preservation of others, wasn't it? They weren't going to kill the Hebrew sons. It wasn't a self-centered lie to, to protect. It was ultimately for, for the sake of, uh, of the firstborn, or the sons, they were born to the Israelite women. Another real-life example would be Corrie ten Boom. When she was hiding Jews from the Nazis, when the Nazis would come and say, are you, ha- are you hiding any, any Jews? She would say, no, we're not. And, and there would be a hiding place in her house. And so she would lie to them. It wasn't true, but, but I, think, I don't think Corrie ten Boom was wrong to tell that lie. 
Again, she, like, like the, the midwives, were, were li- was lying for the preservation of others, refusing to follow orders that would result in murder, right? If she says, yeah, I, have, I got some Jews upstairs, right? They, they would be killed. They'd be taken, thrown in, in, in concentration camps and killed. And so what was David doing? What was it about David's lie here that I think is okay? I think David refused to tell Ahimelech exactly what he was doing in order to protect Ahimelech. I think that's his point. I think he's protecting him. If, if this priest knew David's errand, then he would have a choice to make. Am I going to help him or not? If he's not told the, the real reason, then he's in the clear. He doesn't know anything about David's running. So he's not aiding and embedding a, 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 a someone who's a refugee or an outcast. So, so he, he doesn't tell him the truth. He lies so that Ahimelech can be free from, from guilt. So Ahimelech, as it is, he hears the story, he believes David, and he provides for David's needs, and David can go on his way. Now, now like I said, the text doesn't say one way or the other. That's what I think. Now, you can disagree, and that's okay, and we can talk about it later. But, but I think David, I don't think David's wrong here. So, so Ahimelech, he gives him bread. Now, it's no ordinary bread. It, it's holy bread, the bread of the presence. So, so here at, at Nob, there, there's this, this site of, of worship, of the worship of the Lord, and, and there's this special bread there. There are eight loaves of these little circle things of bread that were put there, and they were for the purpose of worship. And so it was only to be consumed by, by, by the priests, those who were pure. And so Ahimelech, after confirming with David that he and his men were clean, right? Did you notice that comment? Are, are the men clean? That's because there's the, a ritual requirement. Only the priests could have it. So Ahimelech says, okay, wait a minute. There's a need. Uh, should I, should not? Well, are they at least ceremonial clean? Yeah, they are. Okay, Ahimelech makes a judgment and says, okay, I'm going to give you this bread. You can take it. Later, Jesus would pick up this very act in the New Testament as a condemnation of the Pharisees and their rigid observance of the Sabbaths. So David would say, well, look, look, look at what David did. He ate the bread of the presence because human need was more important than the, the, the ritualistic observance. And so he would say, Pharisees, you miss it. You need to learn from David because they were not considering human need. They were considering their rules as more, more important. We won't say any more about that, but that's this instance comes up in the New Testament later. But here we have Ahimelech, for, for our purposes, in light of David's pressing circumstances, he gives him the holy bread. Now before he leaves Ahimelech and he leaves Nob, two more things are brought to our attention. First, he leaves not only with food, but he comes with a weapon. It's not just any weapon, right? It's the weapon that David had used to defeat the Philistine, Goliath, which would have been, David probably dedicated to this, this specific place as, as, a, as a dedication to the Lord. And so when he gets there, I think his, his question about weapons, probably in the back of my mind, he remembers what's there. And so, and so he says, hey, you gave it, take it, take it back. It's yours, there's nothing like it. And so, and so he goes, goes with the sword and bread. And then secondly, because we read the entire chapter, we recognize the significance of verse 7 there. In chapter 22, you see verse 7, a certain man of the servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag. So, so we hear, okay, he's there. It's kind of weird now in verse 21, but, but we'll see later why that's significant. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But so he leaves, David leaves, which leads us to verses 10 through 15, David at Gath. And so he's leaving Nob. He's going to his next destination. The city would have been farther away, about 23 miles away from Nob that, that he travels. And if you don't remember, the name Gath should, should jog your memory. So we've heard the name Gath before. In fact, it's, it's been earlier in this book, in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's a man from Gath whose name was Goliath. 
So Goliath was from Gath. So David's going back where Goliath is from. So he goes to Achish, the king of Gath, a Philistine city, right? The city of the late great Goliath. And what's more, he's got Goliath's sword. So you see? Almost unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, he must be desperate to be, to be doing this, right? But what, seriously, what was David thinking? Why is he going to this Philistine king? Right? Uh, what, what is he thinking? Only thing that, that, that I think makes sense is he's hoping that this king, King Achish, would welcome him. So, so if he's defacting from Saul, here's this mighty Israelite warrior who's switching teams. We can certainly use him against his old team. So, so that must be what David's thinking as he's approaching. Okay, maybe they'll, I, I tell him I'm running from Saul, that, that the king has turned to me, so maybe they'll welcome me and, and want to use me against Israel. Who knows how he'll respond, but I think that must be David's thinking as he approaches. So, so as he approaches, we don't know what the king is thinking, but his servants immediately recognize David, and they have some serious reservations. So they say, what, isn't this the king of the land? Isn't this the king? Which they, they're, they're more right than they realize, aren't they? This is the king. This is the one that the Lord's anointed. He's not yet been installed as the king of Israel, but they say, wait, he's the king. But more than that, they know the songs about David. Remember last week we, we heard the songs. Hey, I, I heard his song on the radio. He's the one who killed tens of thousands. And, and you do know who those ten thousands were, don't you? They were Philistines. They're probably people of Gath. And so here comes David, and they're like, wait a minute. He's the one who killed the tens of thousands of our people. And so as they're saying this to the king... David quickly realizes, wait a minute, it's not how it's supposed to go. And so hearing these servants, David, verse 13, changes his plan, right? Midstream, he, he changes. Changes his plan, his behavior, and he begins to pretend that he's insane. He, he's a madman now, so he's pretending. He's marking on all the doors, and he's drooling down his beard. I mean, he is a madman. I mean, can you imagine, what is David thinking? Is this going to work? I mean, what's he doing? But, but that's what David, that's his way out. So he pretends to go crazy. And King Achish, instead of seeing David as an enemy, instead of saying, oh, yes, we, we got the enemy. We've got the mighty Israelite warrior. Instead, he says, he's a nuisance. Get him out of here. So the king says, do I lack madmen? We got our own. Why do we need an Israelite madman? Why, why, why do you want him here with me? And so just like that, David runs. He runs and he's not chased, and so he's going to his next place, which leads us to chapter 22. So notice chapter 22, we get section 3, David's army. So verses 1 through 5, as David escapes from Gath, he heads to a cave, to the cave of Adullam. And so as he goes, word travels to his family. So his family's here, and they join him there. And no doubt, they were motivated to join David, not because of their love for him. Now, maybe they loved him, but the reason that they're going to join him is because they're afraid of Saul also. If Saul can't get David, he'll go for his family next. So they say, well, we've got to go get with David. Well, our lives are in danger too because of, because of David. And so they're saying, well, let's, let's go gather with him. So his, his brothers and family are probably fearful of Saul's vindictiveness. And so they go and they join David. But notice his family isn't the only people who join David. In addition, everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, and everyone who's bitter in soul gathered to him. I mean, what, what a crew. One commentator says, this is a motley kaleidoscope of social riffraff. Malcontents, folks in debt and or distress, began filtering to David. And so you have this group of, of misfits, these, these outcasts, these down and outs who are all gathering 
to David, and, and it, it says that David begins leading this group of about 400 men. So, so it's this army that's forming around David. And so next he goes to Moab. And so he, he leaves the cave and he goes to Moab. And, and he goes to Moab seeking refuge for his parents. And so Jesse and his mom, they're probably elderly at this point. Right? They're, they're not fit for, for this life on the run. And so David says, well, my, my parents are in danger. I can't leave them anywhere in Israel. Let, let me go to Moab and seek refuge for them. And unlike his, spirit, his experience in Gath, the king of Moab offers shelter to David. Not only David's parents, but David also. And what, what's so fascinating about this, now we don't know for sure, okay, but David most likely goes to Moab because Jesse's grandmother, David's great-grandmother, was a Moabite. Her name was Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. So if you look at the very end of the book of Ruth in chapter 4, right, David is the great-grandson of Ruth. And so David thinks, oh, Moab, they'll remember Ruth. Maybe Ruth is still alive, who knows? But he goes, and they show favor to David. And, and it's probably, I'd say, most likely because of his relationship with Ruth. He's, he's, a, 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 he's got Moabite blood in him. And so David finds a place for his parents to stay, and, and everyone is there in the stronghold. We, we assume it's the whole army, but but it doesn't last very long because notice in verse 5 of chapter 22, the prophet named Gad, he says to David, don't remain here. Don't remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and he went into the forest of Hereth. Now we haven't heard from Gad prior to this, but, but he, will, he will be a voice in David's ear a few times later. But the point to make here is simply this. David's finally found a resting place. Finally, a safe place. And a prophet from the Lord tells David, it's time to get up and leave. And it's time to take your army and go back to where he came from, back into the land of Judah. And, and two things I, I say we can take from this. First, the Lord is still with David. He's still speaking to David through the prophet. The prophet is evidence that the Lord is still guiding him. But, but second, David is still seeking his refuge in the Lord. He's not seeking refuge in Moab, okay? The Lord says, go leave Moab, I'm going to go. My refuge is in the Lord. If he tells me to go, I'm going to go. I mean, how easy would it have been for David here to question Gad? Well, wait, wait a minute, Gad. Clean your ears. Go, go here again from the Lord. See if he tells you the same thing. I, I, I think you might be mistaken. How, argue, how easy for him to argue. Are you sure we're supposed to go back there? Yet David doesn't seem to hesitate at all. The text says instead he departs and goes back into Judah. He sets up his camp in the forest. Probably a strategic location there. And so at this point, so, so we, we leave David at the end of verse 5, and it shifts from David and his men on the run and his army, and it goes back to Gibeah where King Saul is. And so there we, we go finally to, to verses 6 through 23 of chapter 22. King Saul sitting under the tamarisk tree. Verses 6 through 23. And so there we find Saul... Under his tree, he's having what one commentator called a royal pity party. A royal pity party. He's addressing all of his servants, probably this inner circle of, 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 of tight-knit group of, of his yes-men or, or his henchmen. And Saul asked them, and then, let me ask you a question, you guys. Is the son of David, I mean, is the son of Jesse going to reward you like I have? Is, is he going to make you promises? I mean, I mean, that must be what's happened, that you're all conspiring against me, all of you. Uh, why? Why are you conspiring? What, what has David done to turn you against me? He continues, you're, you're all against me and I know it. 
I mean, none of you told me about, about my son's covenant with the son of Jesse. Notice how he never says David. He says, son of Jesse, son of Jesse, son of Jesse. No one told you about my son's covenant with the son of Jesse? And, and none of you even feel sorry for me that, that my son has stirred this man up against me to kill me. You don't even feel bad that, that my life is under threat and I'm the king and it's my own son and this son of Jesse. You're all in on it. I know it, says Saul. And I, I can imagine there's silence. None of them want to speak up, right? If, if they say yes and say no, they, they, it's no good either way. So there's silence, I would imagine, among the Benjaminites. I mean, we see a paranoid king. Don't we? He's paranoid. Everyone's out to get him. Maybe you've met people like that. Right? David was acting like the mad king before the king of Gath. Here, Saul is mad. Right? The irony. David pretends to be mad to escape. Here's Saul, who is mad. And it's in the silence of the Benjaminites that, that a foreigner speaks up. Right? An Edomite speaks up. None of, the Benjamin, none of the Benjaminites, none of the Israelites talk, but this foreigner, this Edomite, speaks up. Doag. Now's my time, he thinks. He, he's conniving. Remember back in, in verse 7 of 21, he was at Nob, but he was there because he's being detained. So for, for whatever he had done, we don't know, but he was detained there. So he had done something to get on Saul's bad side or someone's bad side so that he was under arrest or detained. But, but now he's, he's out, and now he thinks, now's my chance to get on Saul's good side. Here's my chance to step into the situation and, 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 and say, say something that, that'll help me earn favor with Saul. And so he speaks up. What, what, you're talking about the son of Jesse. Oh, I, I saw him. I saw him coming to Nob when I was there. He came to Ahimelech, the, the, the son of Ahitub, and, and, and even that priest, Ahimelech, he inquired of the Lord for him. And he gave him provisions. He gave him bread. And he even gave him the sword of Goliath. Remember that, Saul? Yeah, that sword. He even gave that to David. And that was all Saul needed to hear. As Saul is listening, the, the, the conspiracy theory is being confirmed. And, and it wasn't only these people, but, but it's the priest at Nob. And so Saul says, go, go get him. Summon Ahimelech and all his father's house, all of them, all the priests there. And so they come. And when Ahimelech comes, Saul confronts him. Why have you conspired against me, Ahimelech? You and the son of Jesse. You've given him bread and a sword, and you've even inquired of God for him. And now he's risen against me to lie in wait as at this stand. I just remember, is David lying in wait for Saul? Is that what he's doing? That is, that is not at all the reality. And so the charge against Ahimelech is the same as the charge against his, his own Benjaminites. Conspiracy. And notice Ahimelech's response. I mean, I mean, here we should recognize, here's the voice of reason. Right? Ahimelech makes sense. First he asks, are any of your servants more faithful than David? Don't, don't you realize what David has done, his, his role in your life? I mean, he's been faithful from the beginning. He, he's your son-in-law, Saul. He's the captain of your bodyguard. He's honored in your house. This is David. Do you, do you know who this man is that you're accusing? And second, I, yeah, I inquired of the Lord for him. Do you think it's the first time I've done that? No. I've done this as long as I've known David. And so Himlock says, don't, don't charge me with anything. I'm innocent. You, you talk about this conspiracy. I knew nothing about this. And he can say that. Honestly, I did not know. This, this was David, the faithful one in your house that, that came. And so, of course, I gave him his provisions and I inquired of the Lord for him. But I'm innocent. But Saul, King Saul, will hear, hear none of it. 
you shall surely die, Ahimelech. You're going to die, you and not just you, but all of your father's house. He refuses the voice of reason and, and issues a death sentence right there. And so to carry out this death sentence, Saul turns to his, his guard, to, 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 the, to the soldiers or, or those who are, who are in, his, in his group. He says, kill him. Kill, kill him and all the priests of the Lord. And they, they won't do it. Do you see? They refuse to. They recognize the evil of this command. Right? I wonder if Saul, when he was saying, kill the priests of the Lord, if that registered in his mind what he was commanding. Kill them. They, they refused to. Much like earlier when they stood up, remember when Saul wanted to kill Jonathan and the people said, no, 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 you can't do that. Here they refused to partake in Saul's murder of an innocent person. I mean, this, we, we, should, we should recognize Saul's preoccupation with murder. Right? He's killed David, tried to kill David several times. He tried to kill his son. And so now he's set on killing the priests of Nob, Ahimelech, and all the priests. And so when Saul is, is, is refused by his own guard, he then turns to the Edomite. The Edomite and Doag. You do it, you foreigner. You kill them. And Doag has no problem. He turns, strikes down 85 priests on that day. Now that, that's bad enough, but it continues. He put to sword the entire city of Nob, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. Nothing was spared. And so this whole scene sh- should be appalling. I mean, by the hand of an Edomite, the king of Israel devotes to destruction an entire Israelite city. I mean, just think about that. An Edomite is destroying God's people at the command of God's king. I mean, that is, that's unthinkable. How far Saul has fallen. What an evil unfit king. I was reminded of earlier when God commanded Saul to devote the Amalekites to destruction. Do you remember that? He says, here's our enemies and now's the time, so destroy them. And Saul refused to obey. He wouldn't destroy Israel's enemy, yet when his own anger is aroused, when his personal vengeance is in stake, he has no issue devoting to destruction an entire city of God's own people. Do you see how evil and backward Saul has become? But verse 20, one of Ahimelech's sons escaped. So he he flees to David. So so he he gets to David, and he tells tells David all that's happened. Notice he says, Saul killed the priests. It was Saul. Saul's the one responsible. He says, Saul killed all the priests. And notice David's response in verse 22. I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. Now some, as I mentioned earlier, they'll say that this shows David's selfish preoccupation with saving himself, saying, okay, I'm here, I, I see Doeg, I know that he's going to tell Saul, but I don't care because I'm just going to lie so that I save myself. And that's what some will say, that he knew what would happen and he did nothing. Look, it's David's fault. He takes responsibility. He's guilty. It's David's sin. Now, as I said earlier, I don't think that's the case. I think this whole scene goes to show the great evil of King Saul. And so I think regardless of what David said, in Saul's eyes, mere association with David was a crime punishable by death. So, so I think David is there, and his appearance alone has, has convicted or, or has uh, incriminated Ab- Abath, or Ahimelech the priest. So I think just him being there, then he sees, he sees Doeg and thinks, oh, I know he's going to go tell, but it's too late. So, so let, me just, let me just lie to him. Let me lie to him so that he ma- might have a chance of being innocent. So I, I think that's what's going on here. And I think he shows concern for Abathar, So I think he does feel responsible. It's not because he lied or did something wrong, but it is his fault because he was there. And and the priest, Ahimelech, and all his family were guilty by association. 
And so because King Saul is set on killing anyone or anything that's associated with David, so it is David's fault in that sense. And so I, I think we see David's concern here. And so chapter, the chapter closes, verse 23, and David comforts Abathar. He says, stay with me. Don't be afraid. Now we're on the same team. The, the guy that's trying to kill me now, now he's trying to kill you too. So stay with me, and with me you shall be in safe keeping. Well, that, that's, let, me, let me end with, with a few points of application from this. Th- this, is, this is what I think we can, we can take from this. It is, it's a fascinating story, and, and, and as we go, the, the tension continues to build. But, but what can we learn from here? For, first, I think we see a time to disobey. I think the first point of application is a time to disobey. Now, first thing to say here is that, that in the guards of Saul, we see an example of, of civil disobedience, don't we? They're commanded to do something by their king. The one who has authority over them, they're commanded to do something, and they disobey. The same, same was the case with the Hebrew midwives that I mentioned earlier. I mean, in, in church history, there, there are some, some preachers, some nonconformist preachers in the 1660s in England that said, we're not going to obey the state's orders on how we have to do church because we're going to follow Scripture and, and not what you say. So they disobey. Or think about church leaders in Nazi Germany when the state was controlling. Here's what you have to teach. Here's what you have to believe. Right? They would disobey. So there are times for Christians to disobey authority, civil and otherwise. And that time is not simply when you disagree with a law or an authority or a president. That's not the time. To be clear, the normal Christian response to authority is obedience. Okay, that's, that's the norm. That's what, that's what we're called to. That's the norm. Bosses, leaders, parents, obedience is the norm. So, so you should ask, who has God placed an authority over me? I should do all that I can to obey them, even if they're hard leaders. But... Christians are called to disobey when a leader or an authority commands something that is contrary to God's revealed will. Something that's contrary to God's revealed will. Not just, no, I think God wants me to do this, so I'm, I'm going to disobey you. No, God's clear revealed will. Like, like the, the, the midwives in Egypt, we are not going to murder. We're going to disobey you, Pharaoh. When a Christian is forced to choose between obeying God and obeying man... Christians choose God, right? We disobey man when, it requires, when it's required by obedience to God. Christians ought to choose obedience to God every time. Christian obedience to authorities ought never to lead us to disobedience to God. This is the case in Acts 5. Peter and the apostles, right? They're arrested, they get out of jail, and they're, they're out preaching again. And, and the authorities, they say, we're charging you, we're, we're urging you, don't preach this name. Don't preach in this name anymore. Don't teach the gospel. Don't proclaim the message that you're proclaiming. That's what they tell them. To which Peter and the apostles reply, this is Acts 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, sorry, we can't obey you. And so in their disobedience, disobedience to men, it is obedience to the Lord that does that, that leads them there. When the choice is forced between God or man, we are always to obey God. This goes for bosses, parents, husbands. So, so wives, if your husband is demanding that you submit to him and you follow him, and he's leading you in sin, you say, no way. Right? Submission does not lead into sin. Don't be deceived by, by a selfish, abusive husband and say, no, oh, you have to submit to me, I'm your husband. 
Submission does not lead into sin. You obey God rather than your authority when it's, that's the issue. Or boys and girls, if an adult or a parent tells you to do something that, that you know you shouldn't, something that you know that God has said you should not do, you do not have to obey them. Boys and girls, if, someone, if an adult is telling you to do something that you know you shouldn't, do not obey them. Run away. Tell an adult. Tell your parents. Christian obedience is to God at the cost of men. So we don't obey men, we obey God. And so when there's conflict, we disobey man and obey God. Second, application, I won't say much here, but, but I think we see that sin blinds. I mean, the, the madness behind King Saul's actions, he's blind. He's oblivious to what's really going on. I mean, everywhere he looks, he sees conspiracy. Everyone is out to get him, and so he set on murder. I'm going to kill everyone against me. And so his blindness to the reality of the situation is continual descent into sin are working hand in hand. So he thinks that everyone's against him. He's blind. And so he's going deeper and deeper into sin. So, okay, I'm going to kill them, kill them. Kill, okay, they're against me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to murder. And so his blindness and his descent into sin are, are working hand in hand. And just like in Saul's case, I think we ought to be aware that sin blinds us to reality. It's deceptive. And the deeper, you in, the deeper you're in, the more deceptive it is. And the deeper you go, the further and further away from the Lord you go. And that's the path that Saul's on. He's, he's going fast down the slippery slope away from the Lord. But we should also note that, that this is going to be the case with the next king of Israel also. The next king of Israel will be involved with sin, and, and he too will be oblivious to the reality of the situation. And he too will descend deeper and deeper into sin, won't he? And the next king of Israel will, will murder also, won't he, to cover sin? So, so sin blinds. Sin deceives. We must not downplay the power of sin. Christian, heed that word this morning. And then finally, final application, God's promises are sure. As ghastly and as brutal and as unjust as the murder at Nob was, we cannot read of Doeg's actions without remembering the prophecy from the unnamed prophet to Eli back in chapter 2. Remember back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where, where Eli, had, had his sons were evil, and there's a judgment against Eli, and his house was no longer going to serve the priesthood? Well, so here we are, 40 or 50 years later, and by killing all the priests at Nob, Doeg fulfills the word of God against the house of Eli. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy of the Lord. The judgment of God against the house of Eli is coming to pass in Doeg's evil action. And so I simply want to say, God's promises are sure. We often think of the positive promises, which those are sure too, but there's also negative promises, judgment promises that are sure to come to pass. And so the main application here is for the non-Christian. If you're here, you're not a Christian. If you're here and your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you ought to hear this. There's a day when God will judge the unrighteous. That's a promise that he's made, and you will stand under God's judgment. It will come to pass because God has declared it to be. Listen to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. The Lord will judge the wicked. He's promised that. And just to avoid any misunderstanding, I deserve to be among the unrighteous this morning. That I deserve to be in that category. I deserve to bear 
the wrath and judgment of God, right? I deserve to have my lot cast with the unrighteous. That, that's what I deserve. But God, in his mercy, has provided a substitute for me. I don't fear the wrath. It's not that, I'm not no, it's not that I no longer deserve it, but it's that God has made a way for me. Though deserving it, I've received mercy and not wrath. And that way is only through Jesus Christ. He has been made sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's the gospel message of Christianity. It's not about being good enough. It's not about earning God's favor. It's about trusting that God has dealt with Jesus according to your sins, that you don't have to fear God. That on the cross he died in your place. That, that's the Christian message that I by faith say I need as a substitute. And God in his mercy has provided one for me. And so if you're not a Christian, your sin will be paid for in one of two ways, either by Christ on the cross or by you for eternity. It's your choice this morning. God is merciful. He's merciful. He's not willing that any should perish. And so if you're here and not a Christian, you're being made aware of the way of salvation this morning. Do not neglect it. We're not guaranteed another day. And so non-Christian, there's a day coming when the Lord will judge the unrighteous and if you don't repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you will bear that judgment. God's promises are sure. And for the Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, take heart that God's promises are sure. God's made lots of promises to you, hasn't he? Promises about forgiveness, about pardon, about reconciliation, about eternal life, and on and on. Promises about your future. But he's also made promises to you regarding your present, Christian. He's made promises regarding your current experiences. Whatever they are, God has made promises to you that apply to you right now, today. And you, like David, can trust him. Christian, you, like David, can take refuge in him. He will fulfill his purpose for you. He is merciful and he will deliver you. And so you, Christian, in this sense, I think the Lord would say to you this morning what David said to Abathar at the end of chapter 22. The Lord says to you, Christian, this morning, with me you shall be in safe keeping. No matter where you go, I'm with you. His promises are sure. Let's pray.